Hi, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Schiavocampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. This week, we're joined by Brittany Cooper, a.k.a. Professor Crunk, associate professor of gender studies at Rutgers University and author of Eloquent Rage, A Black Feminist Discovers Her Superpower. Today on Run Tell This, Wesley spoke to people who were on Jeffrey Tubrin's disastrous video call. So what actually happened and should Tubin lose his career over it? And our deep dive into black men and this election, including Ice Cube and Pity Sam. Plus, special guest Reverend Al Sharpton on traveling to Africa with Tucker Carlson. Yeah, you heard that right. Let's start with our favorite headlines of the week. So I'd kind of assumed that since we're so close to the election, they would all be politics related. Um, and that's all there really is to talk about these days. But then the Jeffrey Tubin Zoom call happened. He's in some trouble now because he, when the reports came out yesterday, they were that he had exposed himself inadvertently on a Zoom call. And so my thinking is, well, that's unfortunate and it's embarrassing, but like people have been caught on Zooms not wearing pants and people have been caught on Zooms using the toilet. So, you know, it happens and it sucks, but I don't see how that's grounds for professional suspension. Then, of course, more details come out. So the details that we have now are that he um, was masturbating during a Zoom call. However... He believed that his colleagues on the call could not see or hear him because apparently they had gone from one big call into breakout rooms. And here's what I find most disturbing about this entire story. Apparently, nobody said anything to him. Nobody texted him. Nobody called him. Nobody reacted amongst themselves. And when he came back on, everybody acted like nothing had happened. Having spoken to one, perhaps even two people who were involved in said call, uh, my understanding of the state of play here was that while it is true no one said anything to him on the call, that he did get a side call about it. That my, my understanding broadly is that someone called um, one of the top, the top editor of The New Yorker and said, Yo, why Jeffrey got his dick out on our Zoom? Who and then that editor called Jeffrey Tubin and was like, "Yo," um, and so Jeffrey rearranged himself, called back in, and then went back to talking about the Supreme Court as if nothing had happened. Um, and my understanding is that that call did continue at least for a little bit um, as if nothing had occurred, which is pretty wild to me. Um, but that that's my that's my what I've gathered about the state of play. But I think there's a legitimate question here about what he did wrong. Hear me out on this question. Because like with all crimes, intent matters, right? Intent will be the difference between you getting a life sentence and getting probation. So if he's in his home and he believes that his work call has been completed and he engages in an activity that lots of people engage in all the time, is that reason to lose your entire career something he's worked decades for and is exceptionally good at so i don't know if it's a reason to lose your entire career you're probably gonna lose that job i mean you're gonna lose that you're gonna lose that job everybody on your work call saw your dick (laughs) (laughs) i mean 
everybody on your work call saw it and it wasn't like they they saw it in some just inopportune moment when the camera angle wasn't right i'm not a fan of anybody losing all of what they've built over 10 20 30 years over one incident it ha- would have to be extreme for me to be a, to, for me to say yeah that person should never work again right and and there is where i think intent comes into it because if you intentionally do something that's really egregious then maybe we should talk about whether or not we need to let you back in the clubhouse but even if it's a mistake on the one off you can make make a mistake on a one off a whole lot of people have done a whole lot less on the one off just on the humble and lost that job and it's cool. So if he happens to not be on at CNN, if he happens to not be writing again for, uh, for the New Yorker, I think it would suck in terms of the audience because I think his voice is very valuable, but I mean, can't be pulling out the machinery while you supposed to be on the work call. I mean, it's just not acceptable regardless of what your intent was. And it's not like it's something that wasn't preventable. You don't have you ain't you ain't got to beat your meat while you on work call. Um, Brittany, I, this is your first time with us. What a way to enter. Um, Welcome. I, <laughs> look, I, yeah, I think a couple things. One is I think we should normalize the conversation about intent. I mean, impact over intent, right? Um, and so, in you know, folks, you know, what is it? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Uh, it doesn't matter, you know, if you pull your dick out and people are forced to uh, witness that. Um, because you chose to be haphazard about managing your business, then you deserve the consequences that come with that. Do I think that he should be, you know, sort of, um, you know, banished from all of his kind of public work? Absolutely not. Um, I've worked with Jeffrey Tubin on a thing before. Uh, I've experienced him to be a perfectly nice guy. But I also want to just zoom out and also think about like, but the rest of us are super conscious about who we are on these Zoom calls. Black professionals, women, folks who for whom the stakes are higher. It's not that we've made no mistakes on these Zoom calls, but we understand the need to comport ourselves and to be more conscientious. And so there is a way that the kind of haphazardness of this also just reeks of a kind of white male privilege, right? That you would actually risk it all and risk your future. And I don't know that I'm convinced that the sort of that this is not a little bit about exhibitionism that this is not a little bit about the kind of riskiness of i mean you know of of the of of the the sort of potential of somebody seeing you right uh it's you know the have sex with the windows open or have sex outside or have sex in the car it is i think that that riskiness drives some of this because what is hot about talking about the supreme court I mean, what's got you all hot and bothered that you would, you know, immediately transition from talking about the Supreme Court with your erection to, you know, to jerking off? Like, I don't, I don't understand. And so I'm not, so while like we cannot speak to his intentions, I think that he got caught up because he was trying to be a little bit risque and then he screwed it up. And when you do that, the whole point of exhibitionism is it's risky and sometimes the risks don't work out. If he were caught using the bathroom, which has happened, you know, there's been these viral videos of people who accidentally use the bathroom on a Zoom. It, people would be, it would be funny and his career wouldn't be in jeopardy. But I think the reason that it's about sex and self-pleasure and that could cost him his career is really because we're such a puritanical society, right? But everybody clutches their pearls when we talk about self-pleasure. So so in my view, that's what this is really about. So so I don't think it's that, right? Do I believe that that this particular incident though is is about 
our greater sexual mores as a as a society i don't i think no matter where in the world you are if you know whether you're in a society like the united states that is repressed and not used to talking openly about sexuality and about and about masturbation and about all those kinds of things whether you're in amsterdam right i gotta believe that if he had been on a work call in amsterdam domestically and he decided to undertake or if anybody not just jeffrey tubin but if anybody decided to take on just to do that thing at that time in that setting they'd still be in trouble i don't necessarily know if i believe that that like there's a conversation here that is about our collective repression and the things that make us uncomfortable and etc clutch clutch your pearls and cover your ears as i often do <laughs> right um but, <laughs> but but i don't think but i don't think that that this is that conversation it, well and i and i think that part of it some segment of this i think are, are two different things i mean i i think that one you do have some subsection of people who are reacting to this news having been the recipient of uh, sexual harassment that might feel similar to this, right? And so for them, that might feel much more cut and dry and, and much more clearly and obviously deeply inappropriate and re requiring some type of punitive action because it speaks to an experience they've had in some way. And I don't want to discount that. Right. And, and for all we know, there might have been someone on the call who was experiencing that. Right. Like, as Brittany was saying earlier, his intention can be whatever it is. The impact can be something else. Right. And we don't know all the folks on that call and what that experience was for them necessarily. Right. For some folks, it might have been funny. For other folks, it might have been extra not funny. Um, but beyond that, I also think that in the context of the journalism industry right now, I also think that one of the reason people... Um, have clung to this not just in a kind of hysterical or humorous way, but in a way where it feels like it's something deeper and bigger is that you have an industry that is extremely bifurcated right now where you have people who are hustling every single day to write everything they can, barely getting paid, don't know if they've got job security or health insurance. And then you got dudes who are on TV all day who care so little about all of it that they are, are literally like pleasuring themselves during work calls, right? And that seems like a strange metaphor in, in the sense that, you know, that we do have an industry right now where you've got you've got a small set of people who are making really good salaries who have exposure and platform and and then you've got everyone else who's kind of on this hamster wheel and that can be very unforgiving and so it doesn't surprise me that if you were some person kind of laboring in the trenches here it, it's hard to again like the metaphor is too too perfect you know like Wait, th this dude cares so little about all this stuff that he has and has been given that he is literally whipping it out on a work call because, you know, in, in a time when you have a bunch of journalists who can't get jobs, right? And so I, I understand why, if you're one of those folks, this would be extremely uh, troublesome. Can I also, can I just jump into and say, we're three years out. Um, October 15th was the anniversary of Me Too going viral as well, three years out from that. And one of the things that that movement revealed is all of these stories about women in the workplace having dudes masturbate in front of them without asking for permission. That part of what it means to be a woman in the workplace is in fact, that men frequently whip out their penises without consent. And so 
that is also the way in which he is being read. That is why the the imagery of this, it's hard to divorce whatever his intentions are from this reckoning that we've been having culturally about men who masturbate in front of women in the workplace without their consent or um, desire to be engaged in that way. I mean, this is Louis CK and a bunch of other dudes too, right? And so uh, I think that, you know, even though that doesn't seem like that was Jeffrey Tubin's intention, it does seem like, uh, you know, he is going to have to be accountable. But here's the thing that that means. Given that Tubin knows about that history, because he is a journalist and because he works in the media space, and because that is literally the conversation that has consumed the culture around sex and sexuality in the public, why wouldn't he feel a responsibility to be more careful? Because when the rest of us confront the precarity that other people are faced with, then all of us who have, who are not privileged, we recognize that for the privileges we do have that we're extra careful. All of us are out here being extra careful about our privilege. And then you had a white boy who was out here like, well, this is just what I wanna do today. And this is the thing that helps me release anxiety and stress and my pleasure. And so I'm gonna do it, consequences be damned. Uh, and so, it, so even though I don't think that, um, you know, that he should lose it all. I do think that he does not, this, he is not able to escape the ways in which this is about privilege, the ways in which this is about male power. Uh, and he needs to reckon with that. All right, moving on to our deep dive, Black men and the election. Now, Black women have consistently been a reliable and motivated voting block for Democrats. Now, just two weeks from the election, a lot of people are starting to focus on the role that Black men are playing, specifically after Ice Cube and 50 Cent stepped into the conversation. Now, Ice Cube said he, he's not endorsed Donald Trump. He does not support Donald Trump. But I think we can all agree that he has been successfully used as a pawn by Donald Trump. And 50 Cent, who actually can respect tremendously for his position, said he's supporting Trump because of his tax position. And he's Mr. Get Rich or Die Trying. And he doesn't care what Trump has to say about black people. He's trying to keep every dollar he has in his pocket. And I, I can at least respect somebody who is forthcoming and clear about their position. So let's start with uh, O'Shea Jackson. Keith, you you messaged me last week and you were like, oh, I wish we were taping today so that we could talk about him. Um, because he's been one of the most outspoken about the issues facing Black America. And now all of a sudden we come to find out that he has been used. I mean, I don't think there's any other way to put it, that the Trump campaign used him. So yeah, they they used him and they used the optics of of what whatever their conversation uh, was with him to score a really a really cheap and probably meaningless political political point meaningless except for the fact that it caused a whole lot of controversy and uproar in, in Ice Cube's life and in circles like these among black people who care. Um, I don't think whether or not. Ice Cube had a conversation or endorsed Donald Trump or didn't endorse Donald Trump is actually swinging anybody's vote one way or one way or the other. He did Roland Martin's uh, show. And his explanation was simply this. I didn't reach out to Trump. I didn't reach out to anybody to try to 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 try to glom onto the campaign in, in any way. And I'm not supporting either candidate. There's a party in power. And I have some, and I had some information that I pulled together his contract with Black America, and I wanted to share that with either party, and I will work with either party uh, to the to the extent that it may be beneficial to, for, to to Black folks. And that in and of itself is an old and not not 
terribly crazy idea. It gets into into the old uh, the, to, into the saying that Kwasi and Fume made back in the 1990s, which is that we don't have either permanent friends or permanent enemies. We have permanent we have permanent interests, right? So we'll work with. So we need to be mindful and pragmatic about our politics, such that we can work with whoever happens to be at the levers of of power if it doesn't happen to be us, right? So that's not that's not a crazy idea. The issue that I had with Ice Cube did with people who try to be overly pragmatic about voting and, and overly emphasize bipartisanship is that there can be no bipartisanship when one party is clearly the bad actor. We have an entire party that's been hijacked by an open bigot who has given cover and encouragement to even more extremists and more violent bigots who are now becoming more and more radicalized and organized and the sum total of his rhetoric and of his policy has been to be increasingly, uh, has been to put black lives and women's lives and, and anyone's lives who's not a white male increasingly at, at risk, right? Like that's, a, like that's a thing, okay? And the party that supports him, the party that he is a member of and the titular head of, has not rebuked him for that. And there's another party who, regardless of whether or not you agree with them, has not done that. And so Cube's misstep, which I think is probably an easier misstep for, for, for somebody, an easier misstep than we give credit for if you haven't been involved in politics. I worked uh, in a mayoral administration in Atlanta and I, and I worked very, very early in my career for the late great uh, Democratic rep, Elijah Cummings. Uh, who chair, who's the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. So I've sort of, sort of seen some of these things play out. But for somebody who's not intimately on a day-to-day basis up close with electoral politics and policymaking, it's fairly easy to step into, that, into the kind of trap that I think Ice Cube stepped into. I think he believed he was trying to have a particular impact and his intentions were good, but what happened spiraled out of, out of his control very quickly because the Trump campaign has political operatives who exist solely for the purpose of taking advantage of people's missteps like Ice Cube when they did it. Probably the biggest part of this is about timing. Um, that We are in a moment, this is something I wanted to talk to Brittany about um, and get her take on, but we're in a moment when there's a real question about what black support for Trump will look like. Um, and there's concern in a lot of parts of the left about whether or not black men in particular might be susceptible to voting for Donald Trump. And so in a moment to have um, what publicly appears like closeness between a hip hop icon, a prominent black male celebrity, right? Um, two weeks before the election is the type of thing that might open the door to you know black voters saying and black men specifically saying well can he be that bad i mean cubes hanging out with him and doing x y and z or working together and, and so you understand why in this moment the trump administration the trump campaign would be eager to surround themselves with whatever black people they can find and so the question becomes you know if you're cube or whomever Right. Do you allow yourself to be kind of used this way optically, no matter no matter what you believe about theoretically working with any side of a debate or a conversation to advance uh, black, uh, a black agenda and black empowerment? And so, Brittany, I was wondering what you think about 
this question broadly about the black electorate and their and, and these questions of will black voters embrace Trump to some extent, why we think that might be and what that says about us collectively, and then how something like this Ice Cube scenario factors into that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't feel generous towards Cube at all. Um, I think he's very dangerous. Um, one, what we're seeing right now in the um, the early voting statistics is that Black men are uh, underperforming in terms of showing up to the voting booth, which is his own challenge, particularly young Black men. But we've also seen that among Black male voters or potential voters, that there is an overperformance of like for Donald Trump. So. Uh, in 2016, Black male voters voted at about 13% for Trump. Overall, Black support was at about 8%, I believe. For tw right now, the numbers are looking something like 17% to 18%. Uh, and I've been in... I had a terrible week last week when I treated, tweeted about Cube uh, and had a bunch of black men telling me that Cube was smart and he was doing stuff for the people and no one trusted Joe Biden. And I've been in a range of more mundane conversations with lots of brothers who keep on saying Biden isn't gonna do anything for black people and there's no appreciable difference between Biden and Trump and also that we should actually be paying more attention to Trump because he was willing to come to the table and talk to Cube. So that's actually what a lot of my on the ground conversations with sort of real regular brothers has felt like and sounded like. And so I do think that what Cube did by the way that he framed the conversation as though Biden didn't come to the table, but the Trump administration did come to the table is part of the problem. Because what that means, the Biden camp didn't, they one said, we will talk to you after the election too. What they sort of showed him was, we've already incorporated a lot of the things that you're demanding in our plan. We can have a broader conversation about whether or not that's efficient. I think it's clear that it's not sufficient for what black people deserve. But that's why they said, we will loop back with you after the election because there was no unique thing that Cube was bringing that warranted a sit down. So then we got to ask ourselves why Cube would do this whole thing. And to me, it then becomes about ego. It becomes about the idea that I'm Ice Cube and I, I created a contract with Black America based upon what? Who did you talk to? Were you in conversation with activists? Were you in conversation with organizers? Or did you decide, Black man, that you have the holy grail of conversation about what Black people need, absent of all the work that all of these folks have been doing on the ground for these many years to sort of strategically advance Black interests? But then your ego Ego then shows up and says, I'm going to promote the people who called me back. And then we learned that there's some w interesting business dealings going on between Cube and Kushner's camp, uh, form, you know, and reported by legitimate journalistic outlets like Politico, right, that there are these business connections that seem to be animating this, this timing. So I think that what he did is the worst kind of um, masculine solidarity and closing of ranks that has to do with the way that some Black men, not all, aspire to a kind of Trump-style masculinity. Um, and I think, and I see brothers who are actually being very swayed by it. And I mean, I literally, before I got on with y'all, had a brother telling me that he thought it was smart to listen to the other side and that you know that that is the thing that makes you smart is that you are willing to entertain all of these other people and there is a kind of cultural performance among some black men of a sort of contrarianism that is rooted in the idea that that is the more intelligent thing and i had so many brothers last week when i tweeted about this who called me a sheep and who said i was a shill for the democratic party and so there is this view that listening to all sides uh, or listening to the unlikely side is 
is the side that makes one smarter. And I'm more of the position that we don't negotiate with terrorists. And that at the point that Trump sort of says to the Proud Boys, stand back and stand by, then what he's doing is conjuring a lynch mob. And for Black men who spend all of their time pummeling Black communities over the head with this idea that Black men are always being lynched and always sort of violently being targeted, it is both true and it also occupies the critical center of our politics, right? It animates everything that we do protecting Black men from the specter of lynching, hence our outrage, collective outrage over George Floyd. And then you have a president who tells the new age version of those dudes to show up at the polls and intimidate voters. And then you got a significant subset of brothers who are aligning themselves with Dom Donald Trump at historic levels of Republican support. Uh, and that means to me that we're going to have to have a community conversation about what is Black men's collective freedom aspiration? Is it for Black people to be free and to do better as a group? Or is it for Black men to be the leaders uh, on par with white men? Because those are really fundamentally different things. What, what is it you think appeals about Trump to Black men specifically? Um, I, look, I, I think what appeals to him, part of Black men's collective woundedness about white supremacy is that it has robbed them of the opportunity to be patriarchs in a way that white men have. So Black men go around and they have to witness the, the level of money, the kind of women, the property, all of those sort of holy grails of U.S. capitalist-based democracy. Uh, and, they have, and, and all of us have been socialized to believe that real manhood is all rooted in your command over those structures, money, power, and women. Uh, and Trump gets to be mediocre and still ascend to that. And I think that he appeals to a particular set of dudes who, you know, who want that kind of power. They don't want freedom for everybody. They want male power. They want patriarchy. Uh, and I think, you know, for a particular kind of black dude who uh, is reared on hip hop. And I mean, I love hip hop, so it's not hating. But it is to say that kind of brute, uh, crass masculinity that's like, I will make it rain with you in the club and we will have, you know, many women and shit like that. And then at the same time, um, you know, but you can you can become the president. Well, Cube aspires to that. I mean, his whole story is, look at how I was a, you know, quote, you know, I was in the group that, in, that caused people to invent the term gangster rap. And now I'm meeting with presidents, right? It's a real seductive trajectory uh, if you don't keep your ego in check. You know, it feels very much like Black women um, are often doing the work for the community and also for black men, meaning that we take our role of protecting them very, very seriously, that we will fight for them harder than we will fight for ourselves. How does it make you feel when you have these conversations with these black men who say the things that you say they, they've been saying to you as a black woman and all the work that we have done to support our community and specifically support black men? I mean, we'll girl tomorrow now. We don't have enough time, and I didn't drink nothing yet. And so, um, <laughs> you know I mean? some, so they should have told you in the production notes that it, it is a hallmark of this show that everybody generally starts off with a drink. We started the day before yeah, seven o'clock. We usually start at seven o'clock. So I don't have whiskey uh, in my hand. But next time around, you need to have you look, a little I, something. But I'm gonna let you go on ahead with that. Well, y'all are my people then, because yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Look, I think that. Um, I think that you nail it, right? So black women have this fundamental sense that um, it is our job to protect 
the race, to protect the race, to protect our sons, to protect our legacy. Um, so you see black women in the streets marching when black men get killed. It's automatic for us. We're like, what? They've done it again. And then we're out. We're outraged. We're, we're doing all of the organizing. This year, 2020 was really the first year that we saw this kind of collective outrage from black men who said, wait a minute, they killed sister Breonna Taylor. We must show up. We must advocate for her. That story was so unique in part because it's been the historical exception. And for so long, I've had to say to brothers, like, when y'all get killed, we are weeping and enraged and we immediately start organizing. When we get killed, y'all don't do nothing. Like, where are our marches? And so there is not an equal impulse to protect us or look out for us. And the thing that I sort of need brothers to get is that when black women are talking about this voting thing, it isn't because we think that Joe Biden is the best thing since sliced bread. It isn't about that. It is about the fact that we are like, babies gotta eat, we need schools to be open, you know, we need the government to be running and functioning at a base level of efficiency so that we can actually take care of our communities and build this world. And part of what angers me with black men is that they really, they get to be radical on the backs of black women who are making sure that the pump, the plumbing stays clear and that the water stays flowing. And then these brothers sort of get to grandstand like we so radical, we see the freedom vision for our communities and the rest of y'all ain't woke and the rest of y'all just falling in the line and the rest of y'all are just sheep. And it's like, you wouldn't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of if it wasn't for the sister who dealt with the daily indignities of the ways that these systems are encroaching. So I need us as a community to just have a little bit of better solidarity with each other. And I really need brothers to start thinking about the kinds of performances of masculinity handed down to them by this empire and why there are, why what I want brothers to get to is a kind of values-based masculinity that's rooted in different values because until they do that, then they will continue to see the sort of contrarian grandstanding that they do as being equal to like a radical politics. When I would argue that the more radical thing is the sisters who understand the drudgery of what it means to build a new world. Because everybody likes the language of, we're building a new world, we bring in a revolution. But in the revolution, babies gotta eat, Bills got to be paid. All of that stuff has to happen. Brittany, uh, thank you so much for being here. Will you come back with a cocktail? Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, the Reverend Alan Sharpton joins us with his take on Cuban 50. And he'll tell us about his trip to Africa with Tucker Carlson. Hey guys, it's Mara here. Your support means a lot. So please make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at runtellthis underscore. And don't forget to rate and review this podcast. Five stars, please. Joining us now is Reverend Al Sharpton, founder of the National Action Network and author of the new book, Rise Up, Confronting a Country at the Crossroads. Rev, thank you so much for being here. Uh, so we were just talking about Ice Cube and 50 Cent. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I, I think that they have the right to support who they want. I think that the election will show that uh, their fan base uh, will not be swayed by their endorsements. And I don't think that a lot of people waste a lot of time. Like, uh, their endorsements are going to mean a lot. Uh, clearly, uh, 
when I was growing up, if the Motown acts endorsed Richard Nixon, didn't mean nothing to me. I think it's a lot of attention about nothing. Rev, what do you what do you think of what do you make of this conversation people are having about concern about black men supporting Trump in general? Not that they think he'll get the majority of black votes or anything like that, but the sense that he might have stronger support uh, than previous Republican candidates or even himself previously. Do you think that there's an appeal? But I, I don't see any evidence of that. Even in the polling, you're talking about maybe two or three points different. I think that it's a, uh, uh, a, a narrative looking for a story rather than a story that's trying to attach a narrative. I don't see where's the groundswell or where is that, uh, uh, the evidence of that. Uh, it didn't happen. More black men marginally voted for him in 16 than black women, but the overwhelming majority of black men voted against him. So I don't want to play into uh, Trump's narrative uh, and and make some black men think, oh, I'm supposed to be over here when the evidence is not there. Why do you think it is that the narrative has caught on that black men somehow overwhelmingly or, or in some, you know, in, in, in some great numbers support the Trump campaign when the reality is that they that that in the past election, 87% did not support Trump. And in this election, it's probably going to be, it's definitely going to be north of, of 75% plus. Because I think Trump as a salesman and a promoter, if Trump had been black, he'd have been Don King. And he's selling this uh, and people are buying it. And I'm not going to give it any energy uh, because I think when black men go in the polls and think about George Floyd and Rashad Brooks, and Ahmed Aubrey, how could you vote for Donald Trump? Uh, I think that you will always have uh, a narrative, especially from somebody, Donald Trump made his money overpricing condominiums and buildings. So you ask me why he would overprice a pole? This is how he made his money. He would take a property that was worth a million and sell it for five million. That's how he made his money. And uh, that's what we're dealing with here. He will not get me feed into it. I've had countless calls about Ice Cube and all of that. I won't entertain that. Don't talk about it on my show because I know a con job when I see one. It's not there. I remember they had the election in uh, Alabama. Let's take it away from Trump a minute to show you why I, I, I'm saying what I'm saying. They had the election in Alabama with Doug Jones. Black women voted two or three percent higher than black men. And they say black women elected Doug Jones, black men weren't there. Black men voted two or three points lower. Maybe black men 13% voted uh, in uh, 2016 because some of the men were misogynist and wasn't going to vote for a woman, Hillary Clinton. It maybe had not been Donald Trump. There was a lot of misogyny and still is in our community. We should be having that discussion. Well, let's have well let's let's have that discussion. I would love to have that discussion. I, I, I brought it up. I'd love that discussion. But to act like a con man's con game, why is it working with a few? Is not the kind of conversation I want to have a lot of. Uh, when we're talking about misogyny in the black community, uh, this is something that you tackle head on in your book. What is the message that you have for the black community and for black men in particular? That we should not allow uh, people. Uh, particularly that's ascribed to this kind of Western concept macho man 
that you build and affirm your manhood by trying to in any way marginalize or subject women to being less than your equal, if not superior based on one-on-one -on -one relationship. And I think that too many black men have bought into that, uh, that I've got to be the man and their definition of the man is the woman has to defer to me. And they even rationalize it with a misconception uh, of uh, black history saying, the slave master put the woman ahead of me and this is breaking what the slave master did. No, the slave master used black women as sexual object. That is what he did. And we should not in any way try to blame black women for being the victims of, of structural societal condoned rape. Do you think black men do a good enough job of protecting black women? I do not think that they do uh, the job that they should. And I think that uh, we ought to have to uh, be very public and open about that. Even when I see, uh, I, I have uh, seen situations, I write in a book, when I was growing up, when Shirley Chisholm ran for president, 1972, I was one of the uh, youth uh, organizers and I was the youth coordinator for a campaign. I was 18 years old. I was absolutely uh, amazed going to meetings with her, with some of the black leaders. I know our civil rights leaders, because I had been youth director of Operation Breadbasket already, and political figures that I knew that would just outright say, they're not supporting a woman. They had the national, the historic national black political convention in Gary, Indiana that year, the year she ran. They didn't even invite her. So I saw this firsthand. And I think that we've got to have real discussions about that openly. And I think men ought to uh, be the ones to say, let's quit jiving about this. We need to talk about it. Rev, I want to I want to get to something. I want to get to something else relative to this election. One thing that's disturbed me that I've heard over and over and over again uh, in the community is there's a there's a sense among a certain subset of uh, of the electorate of people in our community that believes that taking themselves out of taking themselves away from the polls. I'm not voting because I don't see a difference between it between the candidates. I'm not voting. Uh, somebody I think somebody I actually know put it put it this way. Imagine me voting for it in, in a system that's not set up for me anyway. Right. So some of us are self-selecting out of out of that. What's your response? My response to that has always been. No party, no government, no group of people in power would, would work so hard as to as to kill people to try to suppress the vote if voting wasn't important. But how do you how do you respond to that? And what do we do to combat that? I think, Keith, you're right. One of the uh, two ways I respond. One is I grew up in the hood and they break in your house. Nobody breaks in your house and steals something that's of no value. They look for something they could sell for you your TV, your jewelry. They would not be spending billions of dollars to take something from us that didn't mean anything. So why are you giving it to them? Because they're going through all these maturations right now as people are voting to try and figure out how to not count those votes, how to stem down the time. Uh, and you're just going to give that to them. So obviously, you're not looking at the quality of what that vote means, even to those that you oppose. 
But secondly, I, I talk about this very often to, to particularly young people in Nash Action Network and where we have, uh, when I do college days, pre-pandemic and others, is that if you're standing there, do you eat food? Yes. That was FDA approved. Who is the FDA? Somebody politically put them there. Do you buy clothes? Somebody decided the import-export of what you got on your back, including your drawers. Do you live in a house? Somebody decided that house could be zoned in a residential area. You want to be independent, build a business, you can't open a business unless some zoning committee says that's a business district. So you can't opt out. You can only say that I'm just going to let everybody make decisions for me and I'm going to wear, eat, live on the options that you make allow for me, master. Because that's what you're doing. Because everything you do is a political decision. And you don't have enough self-esteem to say, I'm going to help decide who's going to make those decisions. But you ain't in the system, whether you like it or not. How are you going to get in a car that they decide the gas regulations, where the highways are, and drive to your job, which they decide what that is, and talk about, I'm not, I'm not in the system. You are in the system. You may be out of your mind, but you're in the system. Hmm. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the Supreme Court right now. Um, do you have any thoughts on packing the Supreme Court if uh, Joe Biden should be elected? I, I think that uh, clearly the, the hijacking of this seat of uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, where they did a complete 180 degree turn from what they did uh, when Barack Obama nominated Judge Garland, uh, we should put all options on the table. Uh, I do not uh, necessarily agree or disagree with packing uh, until we get past whatever they're going to do with this vote. And I don't want to uh, supersede where the CBC and others are going to come. But I, I do not think we should take it off the table at all. Rev, what do you what do you make of, you know, there's a lot of conversation about the reckoning of this summer. Uh, between kind of Memorial Day and Labor Day, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, uh, Rashad Brooks. What do you make of where we are now, right? There are fewer people in the streets today at this very moment. Obviously, the election has subsumed some of the attention. What, what do you think things stand in terms of the progress being made on so many of these issues? I think that we have to make sure that we turn this into legislation so that we don't become just episodic. And uh, that's why when we had the big march August 28th, I stressed two pieces of legislation, George Floyd Policing and Justice Act, John Lewis uh, uh, Voting Rights Act. Fact is, uh, Wesson, you and I have gone back through a few of these days of reckoning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the fact is that we put unofficially we, the parks people told us, we put about 208,000 people in Washington. Not one incident. You know Donald Trump was praying that somebody just threw one brick and it wasn't an uptick in coronavirus. And we had all the families there. And that's why I said let's deal with legislation. We've got to say if we can elect the Democrats in the Senate and, and the uh, presidency that we want these bills passed. That's why I wanted to put out there that's why I keep pounding it on Biden and uh, uh, Kamala Harris. When Biden met with George Floyd's family, and I was uh, uh, convened to meet the day before the funeral in Houston, 
The commitment was you're going to push this bill if you're president. And the same thing to the Senate candidate. What made the 60s the 60s? All of the freedom riders. My, the, the thing that, that never got, uh, uh, the thing, let me put it this way, that didn't make sense to me is how many journalists, and certainly uh, you and Myra are uh, among the minority that wasn't in it, did no research. Organic movements and permanent movements or legacy movements that they call are not new. The Freedom Riders was an organic movement. Martin Luther King never rode the bus. Martin Luther King never sat at a lunch counter. Roy Wilkins either. You had your legacy organization. You had your students that ultimately became SNCC, but they weren't SNCC when they got started. John Lewis and them got beat. There was no SNCC when you had the Greensboro Four. So it's always been different people doing different things. And you had Malcolm X that was criticizing all of them. You know, we act like everybody was locked on saying we shall overcome together. Martin Luther King and Roy Wilkinson had a march in Washington that Malcolm attacked and that the students was telling John Lewis, you shouldn't go. And ultimately, Stokely and them ran him out of the SNCC. I mean, none of this was new. But what made the 60s work was the Civil Rights Bill of 64, Voting Rights Bill of 65, Open Housing Bill of 68 lasted longer than the personalities that were fighting in the room and having ego battles or who's going to be on the front page and who's the West Lowry that day going to write about. All of them did, but those bills lasted for at least 50 years till we got to Shelby versus Hope. And that's what I'm saying. If we come out of this year not having the real firm commitment that we're going to have that George Floyd bill and that John Lewis bill, History would say we had a summer discontent. It was bigger, it was more diverse, but it didn't change it. Uh, before we let you go, I want to ask you about one one quick thing that I learned about very recently that I was really surprised to learn about and fascinated. You went to Africa with Tucker Carlson? Tucker Carlson went with me. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us something about that trip? I mean, did wait, you get wait, him wait, in the first of all, What was that? First of all, where 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 in where in Africa? I was running for president, behave yourself was. I was running for president and there was the battle in Liberia to bring Taylor down. I decided that I wanted to make that part of the uh, presidential issue in the Democratic primary. I went to La to uh, Ghana where they were having the peace talk. And uh, in my entourage was Cornel West and uh, several of the ministers. Esquire had Tucker Carlson go to cover the trip, and he wrote this piece in Esquire. And uh, uh, about a month after I got back, he brought his daughter to hear me preach in the church in Washington. But of course, I'm sure he doesn't say that now. I'm the devil reincarnated and all this stuff. But Tucker Carlson uh, uh, did go to Africa with us, and, uh, and they did bring his daughter to hear me preach. I mean, you best remember Tucker Carlson used to be on MSNBC. He was never a liberal, but he was always where he could be cordial. He was not this far right, you know, everybody, you know, should be in jail that he is now. He was always right or center, but he wasn't as, as vitriolic as he's come now. Yeah, Rev, what do you make of his progression over these years and what he's become now? I think that uh, a lot of it is the era of Trump that you got to go all the way over there to deal with that crowd. I think a lot of that is uh, anchoring and going for ratings. And I think that, uh, 
I think a lot of that is internal media, as you know. He's trying to not only fire up the base, he's trying to get more ratings than Hannity, who Hannity was trying to get more ratings than Bill O'Reilly. So sometimes you got to be to the farther right in order to get more than the older guy that you're trying to be who's got the better time slot. And I think a lot of that is Tucker trying to outdo Hannity. And I knew Hannity when he was up against O'Reilly. So you have the internal media fights and you got the political base that you're working. All right, Reverend uh, Sharpton, thank you so much for your time. We, we really appreciate it. We, we hope to have you back. Will you, will you come back and talk to us after the election? Absolutely. Absolutely. Please check out Rev's book, Rise Up, Confronting a Country at the Crossroads. It's a great read. Lots of great stories, not just about Tucker Carlson, also a lot of good old stories about Trump going back like 40 years. That's going to do it for us. We will see you next week. Have a great week, everyone. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RuntellThis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Run Tell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.